from the Berlin Wall specifically. Take a look at them. They've been there since last night. They are here in the thousands. They are here in the tens of thousands. Occasionally they shout, Die Mauer muss weg, the wall must go. Thousands and thousands of West Germans come to make the point that the wall has suddenly become irrelevant. Thousands of East Germans came across the border today, perhaps more than 100,000, so many that border police lost count. And at every border crossing, thousands of West Germans there to say welcome. While thousands and thousands came to look, even gape at this showcase of capitalism, the vast majority said they would be going back. The simple act of giving people the freedom to travel may have convinced East Germans they need not take flight whenever the door opens just a fraction. This is The Secret Life of Language, a podcast from the University of Melbourne's School of Languages and Linguistics. I'm Dr. Leo Kretzenbacher. It's been three decades since the fall of the Berlin Wall, a guarded concrete barrier that had divided Berlin both physically and ideologically since its construction by East Germany in 1961. The German Democratic Republic, or GDR, to give East Germany its official name, saw the wall as a way of protecting its population from what they saw as fascist elements from the West seeking to prevent the building of a socialist state in the East. But what did the state they were building in fact look like? Ordinary East Germans were denied basic freedoms of movement and speech enjoyed by their counterparts in the West. And attempts to gain these freedoms were often met with state repression or violence. But life went on in the GDR, and for the great majority who played by the rules in the self-proclaimed most egalitarian society in Europe, it's worth asking if perhaps things weren't so bad after all. Joining me in the studio to look back at life in East Germany and to think about how we should remember it are my fellow German studies researchers, Professor Alison Lewis and Dr. Claudia Sandberg. Claudia, I should mention, spent most of her childhood in East Germany. Welcome, Alison and Claudia. Thank you for having me. Thanks for having me. So let's start with this uh, basic question. What was life in the GDR like outside the focus of the Stasi or for people who were not really dissenters, for people who tried to live a normal life there? I would say much of the life in, in, in East Germany went on without the surveillance of the Stasi and You know, when you look at it from the outside, it might have been a bit gray and a bit ordinary. And there was a lot of ordinary life, I would say. There's, you know, people went to work. You know, all everyone had their job they went to from from eight o'clock in the morning to five o'clock in the afternoon. They would pick up their children from school or from the kindergarten. They would go do their gardening or meet their parents. Um, there was a lot going on that is still underexplored. You spent some time in the GDR in the 1980s, Alison, as an observer from outside. Did you find normal life rather than, you know, what you were looking for for your studies? Well, that's an interesting point, Leo, because I was there in 86 and I was a student and I had been studying East German literature and I thought, wow, this literature, especially feminist literature, was really progressive and really exciting. So I was a bit shocked when I got there that life didn't seem to be quite as rosy for women, that 
this um, emancipation that was touted and written about wasn't to me all that evident. I found the society a little bit macho. I was a bit shocked by the standards of living, to be honest. But yes, sure, people were normal, you know, and in many ways I found them a little bit like Australians. You know, Australia is a small society. It was about the same size as East Germany. And, you know, we felt a little bit like the poorer sort of more backward cousins of the of the British and the Americans. And, and I think the East Germans were a bit like the poorer cousins of the West Germans. And so, yes, they were very similar. But we didn't know at the time what we now know is that things were far worse than they appeared on the surface. I'm always wary saying that life was ordinary and normal because we now know of the massive surveillance, the massive restrictions on freedoms, the sort of brutality of the, the regime in the early years. And I'm a bit hesitant of, of people wanting to have that system back because of what we now know about it. I wonder how much this oppressive dictatorship state that is now visible actually impacted on everyday lives of people. One thing that I remember and that impressed me very much was I went to visit a colleague in Merseburg, which is between Halle and Leipzig, a very small city. He was an academic there and he invited me to his house. That was in 1990 already after the Wende. And two things he told me impressed me. First of all, each of the little houses had a hill of sand before them. And I asked, why is that the case? And he said, well, you know, when you get sand, you buy sand. You never know when you have to renovate or something. And the other thing was, uh, we talked about the television and, and they could actually get West television. And he said it was an automatic thing. It was like a, a reflex when you went to bed. Before you switched off, you changed to a GDR channel, just in case someone came and looked it up. So did this actually influence, you know, ordinary, normal lives? I think it was very much integrated into into normal life, you know, all these kind of security measures that you had to take. For example, that you used a different kind of language at home. You knew what kind of topics you could talk about with your parents or your parents with you about your family, family who lived in the West and, you know, any political issues. You know, there was a different school, public places, work were, of course, a different world. And you knew the kind of the official language one had to use, um, the way one had to behave, that you did not say anything about if you've watched on television the, the night before, which, by the way, you could only um, access West German television channels if it was a rainy night, if there was uh, a lot of clouds, then it was fantastic to receive kind of um, the ARD or the ZDF, the first or the second West German channel, and never in a good quality and always in black and white. And there were places in East Germany that you couldn't receive West German television in, like in Dresden, and they called them the Tal der Ahnungslos, the Valley of the Clueless. The Western radio stations like Radio Free Europe or Voices of America, they were um, banned or they were interfered with in the Soviet Union, but they weren't in East Germany. So the regime capitulated on that quite early on. But as you say, Claudia, you never mentioned it publicly that you were watching West German television, but you did it. And as long as you didn't sort of put your foot in it and mention it in some official capacity when it could be used against you, then it was sort of fine and you could get away with it. So, of course, you know, that's why the idea that people lived completely isolated and completely behind walls wasn't true at all, you know, because, you know, you could access information, you had ways to get what you wanted to know. And, and even if you wanted kind of some clothes, there was always 
someone in the neighborhood whose daughter or mother lived in the West who regularly received any mail in huge packages of, of clothes and they couldn't use it on their own and they would then maybe sell it to neighbors, to friends, to colleagues. It was an event. It was a family event when one of those packages arrived and it was only open when everyone was at home. So my father usually arrived at home after six o'clock. We had to wait until he came home and then we would collectively open that package. And the best thing about them was the smell. The smell was just awesome. It was coffee. It was um, usually it was hand down clothes as well. But the kind of detergent used, you know, we didn't have that at all. The smell of the West. It was definitely the smell of the Mm. West. We'd always have some West coffee. We'd always have some chocolate. But you wouldn't just kind of eat it right away. Because it was something special. You know, if I had some Mars bars or so, I would keep it probably for two months. Or sometimes it would go off because I didn't open it. Mm-hmm. It was so special. Um, of course, you know, you had to pay a fair amount of money for that. But there are always ways. I remember actually, because I was a Western student in East Germany, I remember I had a slightly similar experiences and I had drum uh, tobacco and, you know, they didn't have that there. And so everybody was sort of wanting to roll their own cigarettes and, and, you know, they're asking me if I had Marlboro and, and I could really get the sense that certain brands like Levi's, I mean, there were people that wore Levi's, but they were very rare. But this was a sign, of course, when someone had a packet of Marlboro or what were Levi's jeans, they had connections because it was such a homogeneous culture. If someone had something else or something more, it was immediately visible to everyone else. There was some other connections there. So having personal or family relations to the West could be economically advantageous, but it might be a political disadvantage for your career, for example, or something like that. Is that the case? I would say many people had relations because, you know, after all, families lived in either side. I would say, you know, in my case, I had family in Cologne. I would have family in Hamburg. We had family still in Poland um, because uh, my family was kind of emigrated from the eastern territories. But if it was just the occasional package, if um, they would visit you maybe once every two years, that was still okay. Thing was not damaging. And not many people had relations where maybe families um, or in, in the West would send them so much money that could build a house, they could mit- get materials from the West um, or building materials or even a car. That was something very special. And yes, I would say... You know, they, of course, they were watched much more closely than, than anyone else. So West currency was very powerful, of course, in, in the GDR. So there was this chain of shops called intershops where you could actually buy luxury goods or what was considered luxury goods, but only with West currency, not with GDR uh, mark. Yes, but the West mark, the day mark, you couldn't use it there. You still had to exchange it to a kind of a currency that could only be used in these intershops. So you wouldn't do anything else with this money. Again, you know, you go into an intershop and the smell is overwhelming once again. (laughs) Yeah, and I think also having quite a lot of these goods from the intershop could have been a sign that you might have been working for the Stasi or you might have been an officer or even an informant and they also might have connections. 
to the West and, and might be able to buy things that other people couldn't have. But I do think um, having connections to the West could ruin your career in politics or your career in, in the Stasi, for instance. And I've known of informers who were dropped from the Stasi because they had a brother in, in the West. Or they would be required to kind of give up that connection. Or give up the connection, exactly. Could we go back for a moment to something you said earlier, Alison, about the equality of the sexes in, in the GDR? I mean, the, the ideology was this is the most egalitarian society in Europe. And we know, for example, that compared to West Germany, many, many more East German women were fully working in full-time jobs, that children were looked after by the state. So there was a, a, a network of child care system so that women could actually work. Uh, and yet you said uh, you thought that this was a bit of a macho society. What do you think about that? I mean, East Germany introduced a lot of affirmative action policies very early on. They were always very progressive towards, you know, contraception, abortion, all those sorts of things. And, and their main platform was to get rid of that contradiction between the sexes and to guarantee women's work. So women were given opportunities to work in non-traditional areas, like to become engineers. There were lots of women who became doctors and these traditional domains. But once they were in these jobs, they were subject to a lot of sexism, a lot of misogyny. And a lot of traditional prejudices. And I suppose the reason was that attitudes hadn't really caught up and hadn't really changed. I mean, that's probably a fairly normal thing, but I don't know if there was that much pressure to change attitudes either. And so women were still expected to be mothers and to look after the household. So there was this famous thing called the Doppelbelastung, the double burden, where you had to go out to work, like Claudia said. And you still had to look after the children. You had to do most of the parenting because that was women's business. And, you know, I mean, working life was really, really tough. There were long working hours. The hours were longer than in the West. There was the issue of trying to shop and, and buy goods and then having to keep your eye on goods that were available and and then looking after the children. And it was tough. So um, by the time I got there in the 80s, I still thought there was a lot of Sexism. And, and of course, the other issue is that women were represented in non-traditional areas, but they weren't represented in the upper echelons. They weren't represented in the party, in the Politburo and in management positions. That's right. So there was the infrastructure for women to be able to work. So there were kindergartens and what we called hort, kind of an aftercare, after school. All of this was in place. This was not a problem. But yes, the attitudes never changed. And when women were, you know, came home, they still, they were the ones who picked up the children. They were the ones who were doing the laundry. They were usually the ones who had to go shopping. And they were expected to kind of cover all that spectrum, to be mothers, to be wives, to be housewives in a way, but at the same time also work a very responsible job in traditional and in non-traditional areas. Would you say that this made GDR women specifically resilient? It's my impression that after the unification, most of the people who considered themselves losers of unification were male. So a lot of women actually found jobs in the West and, and were very well educated and resilient. So the, the typical image of the Yama Ossi, the whinging East German, seen from the West is a man, actually, uh, rather than a woman. 
Yeah, I find that very interesting that you say that. Of course, these, you know, expectations were always high. And in order to reach a full employment of women, 99% of all women were working, you know, in between 16 and 65 or 67. And they were shocked after the fall of the wall to find these very traditional roles in the West. There were then the expectations for them to be at home or to maybe have a part-time job and take care of the children, while any part-time you know, arrangements were completely you know, unheard of in the GDR. And yes, they were resilient because you know, they, they always had to do all of these things and I still have to think about this kind of Yama Aussie as a, as a maybe masculine model, because at the same time, there was a huge migration wave, at least in the first two or three years, from the east to the west of people who needed a job, who lost their jobs. And this was usually the man who was the one who was mobile, had to be mobile, um, had to take care of the family, and from Monday to, to Saturday were in kind of in Düsseldorf, any, any sort of factory, then came back and then went off. And that way, a lot of marriages, of course, failed because, you know, they could not take this. In the literature, for instance, there are lots of books about uh, East German couples, relationships that break up after unification. And, and it's interesting, it's usually the woman who seems to find either a, another partner or um seems to cope with unification better and that's why the male characters are often a bit of the sad characters, the Yama Aussies who often get left behind in all sorts of ways and the women seem to be a lot more resilient in the literature. There's lots of sort of variations on that sort of story and often those sort of stories are played out through marriages that break up or the East German woman finds a West German partner <laughs> and the leaves the East German behind. There's a lot of them actually. People meet at the People's Solidarity Charity Organization, which has survived reunification. Nobody here misses the wall, but they have all experienced disappointments with the free market system and its unexpected downsides. They failed to say what would happen to us. It was like being thrown into cold water, all the unemployment and so forth. I don't have freedom. We used to say, I'd like to travel to A or B, but I can't do that today either. Claudia, you just mentioned the the massive shock of mass unemployment after unification, which came with the breakdown of the East German economy that just couldn't compete with, you know, West currency, with Denmark all of a sudden. That would have been a particular shock in a society where unemployment was unknown. Basically, everyone worked and everyone had to work. So what was the work situation? Uh, what was full-time employment like in the GDR? Alison, you already mentioned longer working hours. If everyone worked and everyone worked long hours, why didn't the economy flourish? There were a lot of reasons why the, the economy didn't flourish. I mean, a lot of the work was not very productive work. It was a sort of occupational therapy, if you like. There was a shortage of raw materials, and that was to do with the Cold War. And so, you know, people might turn up on a construction site, there'd be no materials to build, so they'd just sort of mark time. And then there was a lot of political interference. Work was really frustrating because it was a planned economy. There were these targets, the Zoll, uh, and so that all came from above. And often they were completely unrealistic. They had to, workers had to increase productivity, but with no resources. Very backbreaking, quite hard work. And you read that in the literature. A lot of novels are all about the hardships of that. 
I, th- I think work was obviously for women really important. And, and I think when the war came down, women really lost it and a lot of women became unemployed. And there's shocking unemployment uh, there was in the, in the first decade, uh, especially among women. If you ask any East German what, what affected them most after the fall of the wall and even 10 years or 20 years later, it was the unemployment, the not being able to cope with this situation. I think also there was a lot of manual work in factories. You know, the technology was, of course, not very advanced. So you needed more hands than you would do. And after lots of factories, a lot of companies were taken over by West German, American, Australian owners. Of course, they introduced different measures. And all of a sudden, in in a place where 500 people worked, they only needed 10%, 50. And, and so, you know, many of them were kind of left. And that's why a lot of towns, villages, places where it just had these high unemployment rates of, I don't know, 20%, 30%. And you see that even now, people who could not adjust, who could not find a way, the kind of the losers of the historical circumstances. You can travel to Mecklenburg-Vorpommern, close to the Polish border, and you find the GDR right there. You know, you still find the buildings, you find the blocks, you find um, people who are very bitter. They would still talk about that situation of, you know, being unemployed. And this, somehow this was a natural selection. Whoever could not get away, who were the ones, you know, left behind were the ones who'd never had maybe a proper education, you know, were for family reasons. You know, there were all sorts of reasons that became quite apparent, you know, with these with these changes um, that were kind of covered up under this blanket of 100% employment, you know, and, you know, no one is left behind. I mean, the cities in, in the former East look quite beautiful, modern now, don't they? I mean, they've all been renovated and the infrastructure is great, but they're sort of almost empty, aren't they? People come in during the week. Sometimes they um, they travel in from the West, they work, and sometimes they leave. So on the weekends, my experience has been a lot of these East German towns are quite empty and there's nothing really happening because they can't sort of sustain, you know, much of a life. And it's really quite sad, as you were saying. And of course, you know, all that money that went into restoration of cities, of Dresden, of the Semperoper, of, you know, any uh, drew a lot of envy by West Germans because there was, of course, a lot of money that was not used for, you know, any very important and necessary projects in the West at the time. And and while there was a lot of solidarity right at the beginning, and this, of course, waned with them, the Solidaritätsbeitrag, who was supposed to be there for just a couple of years. And as far as I know, you know, we still have the Soli-Beitrag. By that, you mean this this sort of compulsory tax that everybody pays. Exactly. Um, a surcharge yeah. or a tax. Mm-hmm. It was paid after unification. Everyone paid it. And they're still paying it. And they're still yeah. paying yeah. it. It's a couple of percent of couple Yes. And it's still paying that. And there is a bit of resentment in the West that West German towns have become more run down. And I think you can see that when you travel around West Germany, there hasn't been so much investment in infrastructure. Yes. And of course, in East Germany, people made up their houses and in some places and in some spots, it's it's quite beautiful. Um, also at the um, Baltic Sea, in Albeck and in Sinowitz, these big houses that were ruins before. No one wanted to live in these houses. It was awful, you know. The walls were cracking. Everyone wanted to live in these in these new erected buildings and blocks in Marzahn and because there was running water 
water and everything was there. You didn't have to put the coal into into an oven. There was heaters and everything, which of course has now changed you know, with all the gentrification, with the fantastic buildings. I've just recently been to Potsdam. I mean, Potsdam is is it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Mm. It's beautiful. And all, you know, these houses that were built during the Ufa time is just magnificent. And you have a lot of kind of cultural institutions or uh, research institutions also moving into these buildings, moving into the East. Max Planck Institute and, you know, a lot of other institutes who now have their um, their main their, um, headquarters. Their headquarters, you know, in, in East Germany. I think that was one of the most impressive things for Westerners going to the GDR, visiting the GDR, the desolate state of the city centers of the old buildings. So something that to some extent looked like West Germany after the war. Mm. So there were still a lot of bomb places uh, not reconstructed. I remember working in 1988 or 87, I think, in the East German National Library in East Berlin. The National Library had been hit by a bomb and the center was destroyed. So the central reading area was cordoned off. You couldn't go there. So you had to go around everywhere. And from a lot of reading places, you could still look at bomb buildings and so on. So that was something Mm. I found impressive and very sad. (laughs) Depressive. Yeah. I mean, when I went in 86 and I studied at the Humboldt University in Berlin, I was just completely shocked when I went into the university, which is a beautiful building, but I went into the wardrobe to hand over my bag, hang up my coat, and there was a hole in the ceiling and there was a bomb. Mm. A bomb had struck and it had never been repaired. The other thing about Berlin I mean, there's beautiful four-storey buildings from around 1900 and all the balconies had fallen off and there was no attempt to repair the balconies because there was no money to repair them and there was no private property, of course, and so no one felt responsible for it and so you just lived with the balcony and you just boarded it up. I remember uh, visiting colleagues at Leipzig also in the late 80s, just before the wall fell, one or two years before that, and a lot of people who worked at the University of Leipzig uh, lived in the area around the zoo, which is a beautiful area with now beautifully reconstructed old buildings. But at that time, those buildings were very, very desolate. And sometimes people only lived in the first and second floor because the roofs were leaking. And then the pigeons moved in. And with the pigeons, the pigeon ticks moved in. So the ticks actually were the things that made people move out of the higher levels and move one level lower. So sometimes only the first and second levels were were lived in. And people also told me that Leipzig, of course, was the the, the window to the west. There was the, the trade fair, the book fair, and so on. And people said that the route from the from the airport to the the fairground, only the ground levels of houses were renovated and painted so that when the upper echelons of the party actually were driven there, they they looked at beautifully painted facades, but only the ground level was actually renovated and painted for them to see. Yes, the GDR was definitely not a surface culture. You know, there was an aesthetic issue that was completely absent in terms of buildings. And I realized that when I was recently in Cuba for a couple of months, and I saw the same thing, that you could not kind of locate yourself because, first of all, it's all gray. You have half-erected buildings. You have buildings that are falling down. You cannot even see where, you know, any kind of shop is. There is no sign. There is no advertisement. And and, and all of a sudden, I felt 
in a situation of a foreigner of West German coming into East Germany. When you come to any sort of place you don't know, the first cue that you always take is the surface, is the city, is you know whatever surrounds you. And I can totally see that this image of, of the GDR of being gray and uniform comes exactly from this aspect of the dilapidated houses. Mm. I think that was one of the reasons why my generation who grew up in the West didn't go there. We could go to the GDR, but we went interrailing to Portugal and Spain and Italy and, and Norway. But we wouldn't think of going to Leipzig. Everything was gray and people were grumpy. I mean, one aspect of the incapability of losing your job was the horrible state of the service industry <laughs> in the GDR, you know, even if you go to a restaurant yeah. and so on, stuff like that. Yeah. It was particularly bad in, I think, in restaurants and cafes in East Germany that, you know, there was no automatic expectation if someone walked in the door that you would serve them. You could say, we're full, although their restaurant was empty. You could say, there's no coffee now, although it's only four o'clock, because you might have shut down your coffee machine just because you felt like it. But just imagine this was for us tourists, you know, imagine how that would have been for people who live there, not just going to a restaurant, but, you know, shopping for everyday things, you know, shopping for fruit, you know, or exotic things like bananas or stuff like that, you know. It was not a society mm. of consumers. This concept was just not there. But you didn't even want to go into any shops and go buy clothes. It was just awful. You, you were not, you know, we were appalled by the, by the windows. You were appalled by going into these shops, which it was all ugly and it was just full of stuff and it was hot and I mean, of course, particularly as a child, when I was at, at the time, I just hated when my mom said, well, you know, we have to buy you some, some trousers. And I didn't even want to go. Probably my children say the same now. But there was also not the, the idea on a Saturday, we go shopping. Mm. It was not there. And I think this kind of falls into place or, you know, or is, is, is parallel to the idea there is no Dienstleistungsgesellschaft. People do not want to serve you because they don't care if they, at the end of the day, if they had made... Mm. You know, 200 marks or, or 400. It was not that, you know, that goal was not there. It was not this sort of attraction or, or competition because maybe the cafe next to the one you were in maybe would attract more, more customers hmm. because there was none. You go into this one or maybe in Friedrichshain was the next one. But on the other hand, East Germans were great consumers. They loved queuing. They would love to queue. For goods. They did love to queue. They did love to queue, right. But they did do a lot of queuing. Yes, they did have to do it. And whenever there was a queue, you would go join You would queue. join it, right? Sometimes you'd join it even if you didn't know what was being sold. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I grew up kind of a fairly rural um, whenever we were in Berlin, because my, my sister moved to Berlin in the 1980s, so I was spent some time in Berlin. And um, and this was a time when you know, my, my mom said, you know, you can, you know, take your cousin or take your friend and you can just kind of walk for two, three hours and I'll meet you, you know, back at, at three o'clock. And so even I, being 14, 15, 16, when there was a queue, I would join the queue. And I remember that one time, I joined the queue and you only find out, you know, once you walk into the shop or maybe people in the queue tell you, but sometimes <laughs> they didn't know either. So I came home with kind of three or four bags of Christmas decorations. <laughs> Not that we needed any Christmas decoration, but, you know, it was there and that's why I bought it. And so, you know, you were automatically trained in just queuing 
and getting what was there. You would hoard it, you'd store it, you give it to your neighbor, you could use it as a present, or you could use it as a, what do you call it, Aussteuer? A dowry. A dowry mm-hmm. for, mm-hmm. you know, for other family it? members, or you could exchange, exchange it. it. You know, you never knew what it was mm-hmm. good for, so you better have it. Mm-hmm. You know, there is a story of a West German left-wing terrorist, the RAF terrorist, one of the later generations of uh, terrorists were were protected, given new identities, and sometimes even had sort of cosmetic surgery. And one of them almost blew her cover by refusing to join a queue. And one of her (laughs) fellow workers said, oh, there's a queue for um, bedding or for towels. Would you like me to get you some? I'm going to queue up and I'll get you some. She said, no, 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 don't worry. No, 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 I don't need it. (laughs) And that's planted the seed that she couldn't have been a real East German because no East German would have said no to that. And then soon after, uh, somebody from the factory where the terrorist was working travelled to the West and saw the wanted posters and that she was one of West Germany's most wanted terrorists and her cover was blown. The conversation continues in the next episode of The Secret Life of Language, in which Claudia Allison and I consider life in the GDR in terms of culture and the arts, travel, uses of language and humour, and of national identity. Be sure to keep up with every episode of The Secret Life of Language by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Producers for this episode were Eric Van Bemmel and Kelvin Param of Profactual and Gavin Neighbor. The Secret Life of Language is recorded and mixed at Horwood Studio by Gavin Neighbor and is a podcast from the University of Melbourne's School of Languages and Linguistics. It's licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2019, the University of Melbourne. I'm Leo Kretzenbacher. Thanks for listening and auf Wiederhören. <laughs>